Once a son asked his father the inevitable question, Dad, where do babies come from? Well, the father figured the question signaled that it was time for the talk. You know about the, the talk. And so he began to explain the birds and the bees to his son. Well, when the talk was over, the little boy looks up at his father and he says, Dad, does God know about this? Well, the Song of Solomon proves once and for all that, yes, God knows all about wholesome and healthy sexual expression. You see, God created sex. It was his idea. Genesis 1 verse 27 tells us that God created the male and the female and instructed them that they should be one flesh, which was a Hebrew euphemism for sexual intercourse. And understand, whatever God creates, God also commands. He has guidelines for every area of life, from our faith to our finances. Even, He instructs us in this area of human sexuality. And the Song of Solomon is the divine instruction manual for sexual expression in marriage. Go to the bookstore and you'll see countless sex manuals from the sexperts, as they're called, Supposed experts in the field, but you'll find only one manual from the authority on the subject. The God who created sexual expression has given us guidelines and he tells us how to experience the maximum intimacy, the maximum enjoyment here in this beautiful Song of Solomon. But don't misunderstand, this book is much more than just a sex manual or an oriental love song. It has a deeper, it has a more spiritual, eternal significance. The Jews had a special reverence for this book. In the Jewish Mishnah, Rabbi Akiba is quoted as saying, In the entire world, there is nothing equal to the day on which the Song of Solomon was given to Israel. All writings are holy, but the Song of Songs is most holy. That was Rabbi Akiba's opinion. In the Old Testament, God illustrated his relationship with Israel as a marriage. He was the husband. His people are the bride. And the Song of Solomon was a picture of the intimacy that God desired with his people. Of course, the analogy is also carried over in the New Testament. Today, Jesus is the bridegroom. We, the church, are his bride. And likewise, this Song of Songs paints a picture of the spiritual intimacy that we can experience with Christ. Guys, the Song of Solomon will stretch the limits of our potential. It shows us the depth and the richness and the lavishness of the love relationship that we can experience with our Lord Jesus. Truly, He is not only the Lord of our life, He is also the lover of our soul. And we learn that in the Song of Solomon. As with all the Bible, this book does more than just reveal God's will. Understand, it also reveals my heart. One commentator sees the Song of Solomon as a challenge. He writes, No book furnishes a better test than does this song of the depth of a man's Christianity. If his religion be in his head only a dry form of doctrines or a passing fancy, he will see nothing here to attract him. But if his religion has a hold of his heart, 
This will become a favorite portion of the Word of God. Verse 1 introduces the book, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. The phrase, Song of Songs, could also be translated, The First in Magnificence, The Best, or the most excellent of songs. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, that Solomon authored 1,005 different songs. It's interesting, only three of those 1,005 have survived until today. Psalm 72 is one of Solomon's, as well as Psalm 127. Those were big hits. But hey, the song of Solomon was the song of all songs. Here was the one that went platinum. This was the one that reached the top of the Hebrew Billboard Top 40. This song is more like a cantata. It's more like an opera. It's a song that tells a story. Chapter 1 introduces the young bride that King Solomon brought back to his palace in Jerusalem. Throughout the song, she's called the Shulamite. She was from the town of Shunem. Solomon met her on a trip to the mountains of Lebanon. And he was mesmerized by her rustic beauty, by her country charm. You see, the Shulamite was a hillbilly girl. She was like Ellie Mae Clampett. You remember Ellie Mae? Beautiful, but backwoods. The Shulamite was the original hee-haw honey. And this was why Solomon fell in love with her. He thought she was gorgeous. And on top of that, she knew he knew she was virtuous. You see, his palace was packed with these cover girls, pampered pinups with store-bought beauty. But this Shulamite, boy, she was different. Hers was a natural beauty. She was a woman of virtue. Neither her beauty nor her character had been defiled by the big city. The Shulamite worked as a shepherdess, tending her brother's flocks. And when Solomon saw her, it was no doubt love at first sight. The king, though, hid his royal identity from her until he was sure that her love for him was genuine. It wasn't until he had returned from Lebanon to take her to Jerusalem that he revealed to her that he was a king. Now, here's an overview of the Song of Solomon, and then we'll go back through it. Chapters 1 and 2 describe the early days of their marriage, the joys of their new relationship. Like all newlyweds, though, the couple had some adjustments to make. They had to adapt to new responsibilities. They became aware of new dangers. The last half of chapter 3 through the middle of chapter 5 is a flashback to the honeymoon. Solomon did come from Jerusalem in his royal coach to transport the bride back to their new home in the palace. And we discover that the long trip back gave the couple ample opportunity to celebrate their commitment, their marital commitment, with some lavish lovemaking. But by the end of the chapter 5, around the middle of the chapter 5, the honeymoon seems to be over. In this chapter, Solomon's wife has a dream in which God alerts her to a coldness that has crept in and settled over her marriage. In chapter 6 and 7, she has learned from this dream. She has heeded the warning and she returns to her husband with a new attitude and together they revive intimacy, the intimacy that she had neglected. Chapter 8 describes a second honeymoon. 
to celebrate their renewed devotion to one another, they return to Lebanon. They revisit the country setting where their romance began. And the change of venue seems to revive a passion for one another. It's a wonderful love story. The Song of Songs is an appropriate name indeed. There is one factor that makes the Song of Solomon a difficult book to interpret. You're not always sure of who's doing the talking. It can be Solomon at times. It's his bride at times. It's the palace virgins. Even the bride's brothers have a few lines. The New King James Version, if you've got one, does an excellent job of providing headings that attempt to identify the speaker. And in most cases, their headings are correct. Just remember, though, the headings are man-made. They're certainly not infallible. And so read and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you as you work through this wonderful book. The dialogue begins in verse 2. The Shulamite sets really the tone for the book when she says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. What is a kiss? Here's the sad discovery that one fellow shared with his girlfriend. Before I heard my professor tell the facts about a kiss, I had considered kissing you the closest thing to bliss. But now I know biology and sit and sigh and moan. 6,000 small bacteria, and I thought we were alone. I guess you could say a kiss is a form of germ warfare. Biologically speaking, a kiss doesn't sound that appealing. The exchange of bacteria, and yet romantically, a kiss is an expression of intimacy. It stimulates passion. A kiss kindles desire. The Shulamite is in love, and she longs for Solomon's kisses. You see, a kiss is a spark. It lights a fire. It ignites a flame. It's an expression of intent and desire. It's sweet. It's refreshing. It can be intoxicating. A kiss, she says, is better than wine. It reminds me of the young man who whispered romantically to his sweetheart, kisses are the language of love. That's when she turned to him and said, well, buddy, how about speaking up? (laughs) Did you know... There are also spiritual kisses in our relationship with Jesus. Psalm 2, verse 12, uses this exact terminology. It says, kiss the Son. You see, we kiss Jesus when we express to Him our longing to know Him, or our intention to follow Him, or our desire to walk closely to Him. A kiss is a prayer. It's a song sung from our hearts. A kiss is a praise. A kiss is a heartfelt thank you to God. In turn, Jesus kisses us when we sense His warmth spiritually, when we become aware of His approval biblically. He kisses us when His Spirit reveals to us His presence or His power or His plan to our hearts. And when Jesus kisses us, it excites us, doesn't it? To know that He's near, to know that He cares, it ignites within us a further flame. Oh, how I long 
for the kisses of Jesus and how I want to kiss him. How about you? Jesus' kisses are better than wine. The setting for chapter 1 is the palace in Jerusalem. The new queen has new surroundings. You see, during her country courtship, it was her and her her shepherd, Solomon, just the two of them. Out there, the days were free, the hours were private, the duties were light, but she's now the wife of the king. She has servants all of a sudden. She has responsibilities. Solomon is also busy attending to the affairs of state. Often he's late returning home from the palace. She's not used to sharing her husband with so many people. And in verses 5 and 6, we find the Shulamite sulking. She says, I am dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, not the tents, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. In other words, she bemoans the fact that her skin is tough and tanned. Women today work hard to get a tan. Women in the ancient world look down upon a tan. You see, she's comparing herself here to the palace princesses. They're always indoors. They're princesses. They have an unlimited supply of Mary Kay. They're pampered with bubble baths, with moisturizers. They all have these white, creamy complexions. But the Shulamite, she's been in the fields under the hot sun, caring more about her brother's sheep than about her own appearance. And when she compares herself with the ladies of the court, she feels inferior and she wonders why Solomon would love her. This is the experience I have found of many Christians. I spoke to a lady just the other day who is living her life under a cloud of insecurity, inferiority. She's haunted by her flaws and her blemishes. And she told me, she said, Sandy, I struggle. How could the Lord love the likes of me? I've failed him in so many ways. Perhaps you've thought that thought. So often we feel unworthy of the Lord's affections. What makes it worse is when we see other believers, mature believers, we see their purity, we see the holiness of their lives, we compare ourselves and we think, oh, I'm so dark. But notice how the king speaks to the insecurities of his bride. I love it. In verse 8, he calls her, O fairest among women. In verses 9 and 10, he says, I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Understand, only the finest and fittest steeds were allowed to pull Pharaoh's rig. See, horses were noble and valuable animals. And Solomon compares his bride to a stallion, the, the pick of the litter, the top breed, the one that's allowed to pull the Pharaoh's chariot. It was the equivalent of him saying, baby, you're like a Royals Royce. You're like a Mercedes Benz. You're a classic. I have a friend who owns a body shop. And for years he drove a restored Porsche. He allowed me to go up and pick up hamburgers one day. We were working up at the church and two hours later I came back with the hamburgers. I spun that baby all over town. It was a gorgeous car. And it was his pride and joy. You see, he had bought it wrecked and he had fixed it up. He turned it into a real gem, a classic. And see, 
That is how God views us. We're His classic. He bought us wrecked. He did. We were totaled. But He has restored us. And He's fixing us up. And He's tuning us and He's repairing us. And now He values us dearly. And when He sees us, He sees us as the fittest and the finest. The the horse that could be pulling Pharaoh's chariot. That's amazing. We're His pride and His joy. Guys, we tend to see ourselves as a broken down pinto. Maybe a beat up station wagon. But through the work of Christ, through the cross of Christ, we've been paid for and restored and rebuilt. We're being detailed and polished. We've been customized in Christ. We are God's Porsche. From verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 7, the Shulamite recounts an evening of intimacy with the king. This is the first of several romantic and erotic sections in the book. In fact, the language of these sections is so graphic and so sensual that the Hebrews rabbis prohibited the Jewish young men from reading the Song of Solomon until they reached the age of 30. And under 30, you couldn't even read the book. These passages will steam your glasses, trust me. They teach us that God created sexual expression not just for procreation, but for pleasure. Reminds me of the farmer (laughs) who had three sows. And he wanted to breed his three sows with his neighbor's boar. He loaded the three pigs in the back of the pickup truck and he drove them over to his friend's house. There he put them in the pen with the male pig and he left them for the rest of the day. Well, when he returned that afternoon, he asked the neighbor how he would know if the mating was successful. His friend told him, he said, well, in the morning when you wake up, if the pigs are rolling in the grass, you know it took. If they're out rolling in the mud, you know it didn't. Well, the next morning, the farmer looked out the window and checked on his sows and there they were, all three girls out rolling in the mud. He was disappointed. But he decided to try it again. And so he loaded the three sows back into his pickup truck, took them back to the neighbor's house, and brought them back home the next that day. And again the next morning he woke up, he went out to check on them, and again the three sows were out rolling in the mud. Undaunted, though, the farmer decided to try one more time. And so he loaded the pigs back in the pickup truck, took them back over, Brought him home. That night, though, he had to go out of town. And the next morning, from his hotel room, he called his wife and he said, Honey, please tell me, where are the pigs? Are they rolling in the grass or are they rolling in the mud? His wife was gone for a few seconds. She looked out the window. She came back and she reported, Neither. Two of them are in the back of your truck and one is in the cab honking the horn. In other words, the neighbor's pig was no bore at all, apparently. And here is the point of the joke. And here is the major point of the Song of Solomon, a major point. God created sexual expression not just for breeding, but for blessing. 
Within the parameters of marriage, God intends for sex to be fun. He intends for it to be pleasurable. If all God cared about in repopulating the earth, you know, was just getting the job done, cloning, cell division, you know, would have been in order. But God wanted to create a means that would not only repopulate, but would bring pleasure. And sex is the ticket. It brings the husband and wife together in a manner that creates an intimacy, a bond, an enjoyment. Sex fuses two lives together. It solidifies their commitment and their closeness. Make no mistake about it. God created sex, and like everything else He created, He said that it was good. The Song of Solomon proves that God is no prude. It's God's version of sex as it should be. There are passages in this book that will race your pulse, that will cause your face to blush. But just remember, God isn't blushing. God wrote the book on sex. And He wants us to read it and understand it and model it in our marriages. In verse 12, the royal couple are attending a state dinner. When they catch each other's attention, the king notices the Shulamite's perfume and they exchange little knowing glances between each other. And she says, while the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. Understand, little gestures, caring glances lead to a night of passion. Here's one lady's confession. Stephen kissed me in the spring Robert kissed me in the fall, but Carson only looked at me and never kissed at all. Stephen's kiss was lost in jest. Robert's lost in play. But the kiss in Carson's eyes haunts me night and day. Understand, it's the little things. It's the way we look at each other. It's the softness of our words. It's the kindness we express that often do the most to encourage intimacy and romance between a husband and a wife. You see, when sex becomes routine in a marriage, it's because the husband and the wife have been too quick to rush to the act itself without paving the way with caring compliments and innocent touches and tender words and romantic gestures. The Song of Solomon teaches us that there's a difference between having sex and making love. There's a big difference. Solomon and the Shulamites' night of lovemaking begin with the smell of perfume at dinner. But soon they retire to the bridal chambers. And in verses 15 and 16, they compliment each other on their appearance. And by verse 17, they're in each other's embrace. As a matter of fact, her description of the rafters implies that she's lying in bed looking up at the ceiling. Notice the words that God chooses to use to describe their sexual expression. In verse 3, the Shulamite says, I sat down in his shade with great delight. His fruit was sweet to my taste. In verse 5, she says, Sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. The phrase lovesick means that she's exhausted from making love. Obviously, these are not Washington apples that she's talking about here. Apparently, these are Solomon's apples. But here's a question. Why all this symbolism? Understand, when God speaks of sexual expression, 
He doesn't use slang terms. That would be crass. That would be crude. Neither does he use medical or anatomical terms. That would be very unromantic and mechanic. No, God uses poetic symbolism to describe sexual expression. That's why he talks about sitting down under his shade, apples and fruits and so forth. Husbands and wives should give this a try. Talk descriptive in your lovemaking. Don't talk dirty. Talk descriptive. Some poetically suggestive language would do a lot to spice up any couple's sex life. Notice after the romantic encounter, she expresses with her husband, after the romantic encounter that she experiences with her husband, notice that the Shulamite warns her young maidens. She says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. In other words, wait until marriage to stir up sexual passions. Tonight, I am allowing you high school kids to stay in the sanctuary and listen to this study because I want you to know that sex is a blessing from God. Too many Christian kids grow up believing that sex is dirty, that somehow sex is evil or wicked, and that's the wrong attitude. Sex is fun. Sex is good. Sex is from God, and it's enjoyable. It becomes harmful only when it's engaged in outside of a lifelong marital commitment. Teenagers, singles, need to think properly about sexual expression. Sex is good, sex is holy, but it comes with a warning label. Three times in the Song of Solomon. Chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 8, verse 4. The Shulamite provides this warning label. Do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. She tells her maidens not to incite sexual passion until after marriage. Understand, sexual expression is like a nuclear explosion. Once it has started, it is awfully hard to stop the reaction. Don't even stir it up until you're married, she says. The Shulamite is reasoning with her maidens. She's saying, why even light the fire when it's wrong to follow through? Guys, when you engage in heavy petting, when you rev up the hormones knowing that it's going to lead to a moral and spiritual and physical dead end, you're making a huge mistake. You see, it's naive for Christian young people to agree with God that premarital sex is wrong then turn around and make out with their sweetheart, knowing that they're going to kindle a fire that could burn out of control and that could easily take them down the wrong direction. If you believe that premarital sex is wrong, then you'll take precautions not to move in that direction. You'll heed the warning of the Shulamite and not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases God. God, the Shulamite, are not trying to be a killjoy They're trying to shelter you from harm and preserve for your marriage the highest 
and the holiest of joys. The Shulamite wants her maidens to set their standards high. And that's what we want for those of you who are single. Not only should you remain a virgin, but you shouldn't even toy with sexual temptation. Don't even rev up the engines. Do nothing to stir up nor awaken love until it pleases God. In chapter 2, verse 8, the Shulamite flashes back to their courtship. And the day that Solomon proposed, she says in verse 10, My beloved spoke, and he said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. She recalls this initial love that they shared for one another. You remember, Jesus warned the church in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. It was the church at Ephesus. He said, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. This is the problem with many believers today. They've lost the passion. They've lost the desire that they once had in their relationship with the Lord. Their intensity for the Lord has faded. We need to pose that question to ourselves. What about us? Do we feel the joy of God's forgiveness, the same rush of His love that we felt in the beginning? Do we still appreciate His mercies and His grace? Does the desire to tell the world of all that Jesus has done for us still burn in our hearts? Or have we become blasé and passive and cold and nonchalant toward the Lord? Have we left our initial enthusiasm? Have we left our first love? It's interesting, the Shulamite seeks to revive that first love by flashing back to her courtship to the beginning. The Shulamite also warns, her brothers warn the couple in verse 15. They give some advice to Solomon and their sister. They say, catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. You see, since this family owned a vineyard, the brothers knew well the danger posed by the little foxes. See, these little animals could slip through the cracks in the wall, the holes in the fence, and they could eat the grapes. And before you realized they were even present, they could devastate a crop. Did you know the same is true in our relationship with God, that there are little foxes that can cause us harm? Little compromises that we make, white lies, gray areas, willing accommodations, roots of bitterness, impure motives, slight hesitation. You know, we don't think anything of these. They're just little things. No big deal. But they are a big deal. They're little foxes. And if you allow them into your garden, before you know it, they can devastate the crop. They can rob you of joy. They can allow further spiritual slippage to take place in your relationship with God. Tolerate these little foxes and in times they will eat away your vineyard. This is also a danger to our marriages. You know, we guard ourselves against the blatant attacks. We refuse to let the calamities of life pull our marriage apart. But what about the little foxes? The misunderstandings. The lapses of communication. The insensitivities to one another. The perceived slights. It just eats away at our marriage. And before long, we're strangers and we don't know why. We don't have those same feelings and we don't know where we've lost them. The reason is we've allowed minor issues to pile up, little foxes to eat away at the crop, and they've done damage. Guys, watch out 
for the little foxes that can spoil the vine. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, the Shulamite recounts her response to Solomon's marriage proposal. At first, she tells him that she wants to sleep on the decision. And yet, before daybreak, she makes up her mind. And in the middle of the night, she goes out to seek her beloved, to give him her answer. She says in verse 4, Scarcely had I passed by them when I found the one I love. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. She immediately wants to bring Solomon home to meet mom. And of course, it was at the bride's house where they would get married and would consummate the relationship. But what a wonderful example of a committed bride. I love how she accepts his proposal. She says, I held him and would not let him go. Have you made that kind of a commitment to Jesus Christ? Can you say to Jesus, I have held him and I have decided to never let him go. Come what may. No matter what I face, I'm going to follow Jesus all the days of my life. I'm going to never let him go. I hope you've made that kind of a commitment. Rather than leave her first love, the Shulamite fans the flame of that initial love by dwelling on the promises she's made and the initial ways she expressed that commitment. You see, this is how Jesus told the church at Ephesus to return to their first love. Back in Revelation, he told them, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. In other words, remember the promises that you made. Repent of not keeping them and then repeat those initial acts. Go back to the ways you expressed your commitment in the beginning. Repeat those tokens of commitment. Go back to the beginning. That's where you can rekindle and recultivate that first love. And this is also what the Shulamite is doing in her relationship with Solomon. In fact, beginning in chapter 3, verse 6, she recalls her wedding night. Again, it's a flashback. And she remembers that wonderful trip that she made from Lebanon back to Jerusalem and how they celebrated the honeymoon and how it all began. She says, Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchant's fragrant powders? Behold, it is Solomon's couch with 60 valiant men around it of the valiant of Israel. The Shulamite will never forget seeing her bridegroom coming down the road in his oriental limo. Verse 7 calls it a couch. Verse 9 calls it a palanquin. What it was, basically, was a mobile bedroom. It was an ancient version of a customized van. Had a stereo, opaque glass, carpeted bed in the back. This is the kind of a vehicle that you would never allow your unmarried daughter to set one foot in. The court ladies had lined the bed with flower petals, with scented powders. The Orientals, of course, believed that the art of lovemaking should include the stimulation of all five senses, not just sight, but smell, hearing, and so forth. One Bible commentator describes what you would have found if you had stepped into Solomon's coach 
and looked inside this palanquin. He says, The wall would have been lined with beautiful linen and satin curtains, which were coated with scented powders to make the room smell erotic. The bed sheets were dusted with scented powders, as was the clothing. Their bodies were anointed with scented lotions. To top it all off, they probably burned incense, and thus the whole room was filled with smoke. In fact, you probably would have choked. Guys, Solomon made sure that the honeymoon environment was exciting and stimulating and soothing for his bride. And his couch, his coach, it was both, showed that he cared. Husbands need to remember that the environment plays a major role in your wife's sexual desire. A smart lover will select the right time and eliminate all distractions and prepare a romantic environment. You know, for us men, you know, we block out. But when it comes time for a woman to express sexual desire, he, she takes in. And so her environment matters greatly. And she might complain, well, I can't right now. The dishes need to be done. And so I'm sitting there thinking, what do the dishes have to do with it? If you're worried about the dishes, I'll go downstairs, I'll pile them up, I'll throw them out in the backyard, I'll buy you new dishes. What do the dishes have to do with But for a woman, the environment matters. And a smart lover, a smart man, will make sure that he doesn't fight it, but flows with it and prepares a romantic environment. In chapter 4, Solomon woos his bride with words. And he works his way down the body of his bride, complimenting her on her physical attributes. In other words, he turns her on with words. Husbands, a skilled lover isn't all hands. He knows how to spin a phrase. Solomon compliments, the compliments start with the Shulamite's eyes and her hair. Then he talks about her teeth and her lips, then her neck. Obviously, he's working his way downward. That's as far as I'll go. A beautiful exchange takes place at the end of the chapter. In verse 12, Solomon refers to his bride, his virgin bride, as a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. And in verse 16, the Shulamite answers, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden that its spices may flow out. Obviously, these words are laced with sexual overtones. And some commentators see the end of verse of chapter 5, verse 1, the first verse of chapter 5, they see it as the voice of God bringing His approval to the whole relationship. He says, Eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. God is approving of their lovemaking. Understand, Oriental gardens were more than just a couple of rows of vegetables. They were large, walled enclosures. Inside were springs and waterfalls, fountains, 
There were trees and flowers and aromatic blossoms. Paths sort of weaved their way in and out of the trees. Along the paths were little private coves where you could sit and relax and enjoy the shade. You could take in the scents and the sights. These gardens were exclusive and they were only for the rich. On occasion, though, the desert winds would blow through the garden and would lift the scents from beyond, behind the walls and, and would just bring them out beyond the walls to the surrounding village. Suddenly, the scents, the fragrances of the garden would become accessible and enjoyable to those outside. Prior to her wedding night, the Shulamite had been a garden enclosed. But that night, she invites her new husband to arouse her passions and to enjoy what's previously been enclosed and inaccessible to anyone else. She gives him a valuable gift. She gives him something that was reserved only for the rich, that was exclusive. I hope that every single person desires to give the same gift, the same special treasure to their future spouse. Make sure you remain a garden enclosed. You know, honeymoons are wonderful times. Sadly, though, for every couple, there comes a point when the bliss of the honeymoon ends and the duties of marriage begin. Here are a list of ways that you can identify when the honeymoon is over. He phones that he'll be late for supper and she's already left a note that it's in the refrigerator. The honeymoon's over. The dog brings you your slippers and your wife barks at you. She complains about how much noise he makes while fixing his own breakfast. <laughs> that happens. The honeymoon's over. He no longer smiles gently as he scrapes the burnt toast with the jam. He finds out he married a big spender and she finds out she didn't. The wife stops making a fuss over her husband and begins to make a fuss with him. And the honeymoon is definitely over when the bride goes from saying, I do, to saying, you'd better. <laughs> In chapter 5, the Shulamite has a dream that warns her that some bad attitudes have crept into her relationship with Solomon. She says in verse 2, I sleep, but my heart is awake. In other words, I'm dreaming. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks. Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. In other words, Solomon is late getting home from work. It must have been the wee hours of the morning because his clothes are soaked with dew. And yet he wants into the queen's bedroom to initiate intimacy, to enjoy the romance, but she's not willing. In verse 3, she offers a couple of really lame excuses. She says, I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I'm sure Solomon is thinking, baby, I don't want you to put your robe on. Your robe is the last thing you're going to need for what I got in mind. She says, I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? You know, she comes up with this foot fetish all of a sudden. 
Another lame excuse. She just doesn't want to be bothered. She recalls in verses 4 through 6, My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. By the time she gets around to getting up and opening the door, Solomon's gone. He's been spurned. His fragile male ego has been crushed. She realizes she's been hurt and she races through the streets to find him and to apologize to him. Guys, this is exactly how a chill, how a frostiness can settle over our relationship with Jesus. We get too busy. We grow too tired. We run off to work before we spend time with Him. We turn in at night without setting aside time for Him. We neglect the relationship. We get lazy. We feel like prayer is a bother. That's how a coldness, that's how the frostiness sets in. When we're we're not faithful to be there for Him and to be there with Him and to spend time with our Lord And as a result, we can spurn the Lord Jesus. He loves us more than life itself. He proved that, didn't He, on the cross. And yet we come up with lame excuses. Well, Lord, I just had some paperwork I had to do. Just had to get into the office early today. You know, just, just lame excuses. Why didn't we spend time with him? Why didn't we care enough about him to open the door when he knocked? How often we grieve the Lord. You know, you can only grieve someone you love or someone who loves you. Grieve is a love word. You know, if if he didn't love you, you couldn't grieve him. Make him mad, maybe. Upset him, maybe. But you couldn't grieve him. You can only grieve someone who loves you and who wants to spend time with you. You see, for love to flourish in our relationship with Jesus, we have to give it time. We have to abide in the Lord's presence. We have to cultivate and nourish and kindle our relationship if we want it to grow. Let me also say a word here to married couples. Sex in marriage is a lot like prayer in our relationship with God. It needs to be fun. It needs to be fervent but it also needs to be frequent. It's not a marital elective. It is the responsibility for both partners to work at their sex life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, Paul says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Therefore, Do not deprive one another so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The Shulamite realizes that a coldness has crept into her relationship with her husband. And she takes three steps to break the chill and to renew the thrill of their relationship. And these steps also have a marital and a spiritual significance for us. In the remainder of the book, 
The Shulamite adopts first a new attitude. Second, she develops a new aggressiveness. And third, she seeks a new atmosphere. First, in chapter 5, verses 10 through 16, she develops a new attitude toward her husband's body. In chapter 4, Solomon is the one who compliments the Shulamite on her physical features. Now, in chapter 5, the Shulamite returns the favor, and she makes some pretty sensual statements. She summarizes her feelings in verse 16. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. My wife says that to me all the time. Oh, Sandy, you're altogether lovely. And it blesses me when she does. And she probably will say it again to me tonight, I hope. You know what, though? I think this is so important. I think this is important for the ladies to catch. Because there are a lot of married women who think of their husband, the word husband, as being a synonym for words like Father, provider, nice guy, friend. When you hear the word husband, married ladies, what comes to your mind? Probably one of those words. But for some ladies, they stop short of associating the term husband with the term lover. Instead of reading a romance novel, wives, you need to look to your husband as God's gift to satisfy your sexual and your romantic needs. This is the Shulamite strategy. What she does here in chapter 5 is she daydreams about her husband's body. She thinks about her husband in sexual terms. And what it does is it breaks the chill on their relationship. Let me also apply this to us spiritually. One way to renew a devotion and a love for Jesus Christ It's just to sit down and make a list of His attributes. Just make a list of what you know about Jesus. The more we ponder His grace and His glory and His goodness, the more lovable He grows in our minds. The more we are attracted to Him in our hearts. The more we'll want to praise Him and glorify Him and adore Him and serve Him. You see, if you never think about a person, Don't expect your love for that person to grow. And if you never think about Jesus, if you never catch yourself daydreaming about your Lord, how do you think your love for Him is going to grow? This is why the writer of Hebrews issues his call for devotion and perseverance by saying in chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus. Look to Jesus. Think about Him. Focus on Jesus And your love for Him will grow. Here's the thing about Jesus. The more you get to know Him, the more you'll want to know Him. He's that kind of person. As a matter of fact, He is altogether lovely. In chapters 6 and 7, the Shulamite takes another step to renew her marriage. In chapter 6, Solomon returns from a royal business trip. Or as she puts it in verse 3, he's been away feeding his flocks. 
Upon his return, Solomon reassures his bride of his love for her. And in response to her dream and the warning that it brought, she further wants to break the chill that settled over their relationship by showing a new sexual aggressiveness toward her husband. And in verse 13, we have mentioned the dance of the double camp. In other words, the Shulamite performs an oriental dance for her husband. This ain't a foxtrot. This is not a square dance. She performs a very sexy, a very sensual dance. Solomon says in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, The curves of your thighs are like jewels. The work of the hands of a skillful workman Your navel is a rounded goblet which lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. I don't know how that one would work on your wife, but... (laughs) It must have turned on the Shulamite. Notice this phrase, the curve of your thighs. It could be translated, the vibration of your hips. Apparently, the Shulamite had gone down to the community center and taken some belly dancing lessons. Talks about her navel, like a blended beverage. Must have been like a blender or something, the way she was shaking and dancing. But hey, don't miss the point here. There's an important point here. A husband shouldn't be the only initiator in a marriage. At times, the wife should also become the aggressor. This also has a powerful spiritual parallel. Certainly, we love Jesus only because He first loved us. We were blind to His love and His truth until the Holy Spirit convicted our hearts and exposed our need for the Savior. Jesus made the initial move. We all would agree with that. God was the aggressor in our salvation. But now that we know the Lord, He now expects us to seek Him and to ask and to knock and to have a passion for Him. Jesus told us that we're to love God with all our hearts and soul and mind and strength. Rather than just sit back passively now and wait on the Lord to reveal Himself to us, we need to be humbling ourselves and studying His Word and seeking the Lord in prayer and cultivating an awareness of His presence. We need to be aggressively wanting to grow if we're going to be all that we can be in our relationship with Christ. We need to be the aggressor as well. In chapter 8, the Shulamite takes one more step in her attempts to break the chill on their relationship In chapter 7, verse 11, she suggests, Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. There I will give you my love. She suggests a new venue for their next rendezvous. Hey, let's get away for the weekend. Let's go back to the country to relight the flame. In chapter 8, Solomon and the Shulamite go on a second honeymoon. I think this is also vital in our relationship with the Lord. Remember, on numerous occasions, Jesus would withdraw from the crowds. He would even leave behind his own disciples to separate himself to God. 
Sometimes he would get away from the daily routine to spend time with his Father in heaven. Often he went to the mountain for a season of prayer. I do this as often as I can. I have come to the conclusion that this is a necessity for my spiritual welfare. On occasion, to get away, to get into a quiet place, and to just spend a season with the Lord, refreshing and renewing my love for Him. See, if a chill has come over your relationship with God, if you need to revive the spiritual intimacy between you and your Savior, plan a holy getaway. Separate yourself to the Lord. If you can't take a few days, take a few hours. Get away in the afternoon. Spend a season of prayer with the Lord. Apparently, for Solomon and the Shulamite, their little vacation worked. In chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, she comments, His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. And again, the warning... Sex is too powerful to play with. Sex in the hands of teenagers is like pulling the pin and handing a hand grenade to a toddler. Don't even stir up sexual passions. Don't even stir them up until you're married. You see, sexual passion is like a fire. In the fireplace of marriage, that expression warms the house. But outside the fireplace of marriage, that same fire can burn the house to the ground. It can cause incredible damage. Again, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Is sex good? Sex good? Is it a blessing? Is it... Going to be fun? Is it for now? No. Will you wait until you get married? Good for you. In chapter 8, verse 5, A relative sees the Shulamite, and at first he doesn't recognize her. Remember the last time he saw her, she was a shepherd girl. Now she's the queen of Israel. And he says to her, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. You know, once he recognizes her, this relative says that he was there the day she was born. Hey, the day your mother delivered you under that apple tree, I knew you. In other words, I knew you when you were nothing. I knew you back then. This is probably a needed reminder of the, for the Shulamite. Probably kept her humble. And I think we also need this awareness. You know, we do need to see ourselves in Christ. We are His royal bride. But I think we also need to never forget who we would be and what we are capable of apart from Christ. Never forget that either. Verse 7 packs a powerful message. It says, Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. 
Solomon and the Shulamite may have had a marriage made in heaven, but that marriage had to be lived out on earth. And there were problems as there are in every marriage. Guys, every couple has rough waters to navigate, difficulties to work through, but real love endures. In the end, the Shulamite concludes, many waters cannot quench love. Also, I remember 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, love never fails. The book ends with the couple added again. In the final verse, the Shulamite uses more poetic symbolism to invite her husband once more to make love to her. She says to him, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. In other words, she doesn't want him to wait. She's ready for him right then. You know, once you begin to catch on to the poetic symbolism, this book gets too hot to handle, buddy. Here's your homework for tonight, if you're married. If you're single, here's your homework. Don't read the Song of Solomon anymore tonight. You've had enough of it. But if you're married, here's your homework. Go home and sit down on your bed. And husband, you read Solomon's parts. And wife, you read the Shulamite's parts. And I bet you, you won't get through with the whole book. I bet you. We'll report back next week. No, we won't. No, we won't. I'll never forget the woman who approached me following a study that I taught on the Song of Solomon. And she was so appalled. She was infuriated that I had discussed a subject like sexual intimacy in the sanctuary of the church. In her face, she was beat, it was beat red. She was obviously offended. She was upset. But in my discussion with her, the point that she missed was that all I had done was teach the biblical text. Now, I'm sure this same woman had watched her share of television. And somehow she had managed to endure endless examples of sexual innuendo. But for some reason, put in the context of Scripture, she was offended by God's version of sex. And I thought a lot about that. And then it hit me. Sex as it should be. Sexual intimacy, according to God's design, is so lavish, so scintillating, so passionate, that it makes secular versions of sex seem tame. If sex is just another bodily function, as the world makes it out to be, then sex is, bodes no more excitement for us than you know, a sandwich for a hungry man or a glass of water on a hot day. It's no big deal, really. But listen, take sex and make it holy. See it as a gift from God. Note it as the crown of commitment. See the mysterious intertwining of two souls that take place within it. And sex will regain its sizzle. It'll get hot, man. Restore to sex 
its holiness and its honor and its nobility. Rediscover its spiritual component and sex will regain its intensity and its passion. It'll become powerful, if not downright explosive. And when you read about it in God's Word, in its purest form, it will make you blush. I trust you've enjoyed tonight's Bible scan. May it bless your marriage and may it draw you closer in a beautiful intimacy with the lover of our souls, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for our study tonight. Lord, I pray that it will bless us all. I pray that it will bless the marriages here. I pray that it will encourage the singles here. Lord, I pray that it will cause us all to draw closer to you. For you are indeed the lover of our souls. And we praise your name tonight. The wonderful, matchless, precious name of Jesus. For Lord, you are altogether wonderful. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.